Today we'll do Yemei Chabad for the 11th day of Tammuz in the year Tafrej Nun Aleph, that is 651. That is the day that the Alter Reb, that the previous Rebbe started to put on tefillin while he was 11 years old. Usually you wait for tefillin till you're 13 or two months in advance that we do so, but the previous Rebbe, uh, he was special and he was... Um, he put on the tefillin earlier uh, at the age of 11. And around 1894. 91. And in, in 1891. Okay, so the uh, previous Rebbe writes that um, on Friday, which was after Shabbos, this was the 11th day of Tammuz, uh, he was born on the 12th day of Tammuz. Uh, Yud Beis Tammuz is his birthday. And so this was just a day uh, shy to his birthday when he turned 11. Uh, this was 11 day of Thomas, and 7 in the morning my father called me. And when I came to here, he told me to close the door. And when I um, came uh, close to him, he opened up the drawer on the table, and he took out a small period fill, and he told me, these tefillin are of my father, the Rebbe Marash, that he would put them on in the morning, when he would uh, read the uh, small Shema. The small Shema, I'll explain to you in a minute, small Shema means uh, before the davening, just in the morning, just to read the Shema in the tefillin. Uh, and there were two peers, one for Rashi and one Rabbi Natam, uh, together, and um, that's what he would do. He would put them on. Um, these tefillin, so apparently he would put on the Rashi and Tams together uh, all at the same time. These tefillin are the Rashis. And he told me, instructed me to put them on without a bracha. And he told me to daven in his room the entire davening. And from that Sunday, which was the 13th day of Tammuz, so every day I would come to him to put on the tefillin with a bracha with name, Hashem's name, Shev Malchus, in these tefillin. And then I would go to shul to daven with the minion. And then... Uh, to daven with the minion. And then I would uh, review Mishnayis by heart. I don't understand. So what is he trying to say here? Is he trying to say that he didn't daven with the minion? He went to the Mesakneset to daven with Sibur. And then I would recite... Orally, the Mishnayis. Perhaps after he davened. So apparently he would daven every day when he would go to his father's room to put on the tefillin, and he started making a bracha already on them. Uh, but uh, as the Rebbe didn't want anybody to know about this, because this was a unique case, unique case so he didn't want anybody to know, because he didn't want anybody to learn from this. It was just like something special for the previous Rebbe. But... It seems like from the follow-up over here that he would daven. It just says here that he would go to put on the tefillin, but it seems like he would not just put on the tefillin, but he would do all the davening, and then during the the time with the minion, he would recite Mishnah's Baal I mean, that would be kind of uh, people around him or seeing him didn't see that he wasn't davening at the time or whatever. I mean, that would be kind of uh, uh, difficult to keep this a secret that we're talking about for... This went on for two years, presumably till his bar mitzvah. Um, you know, generally, uh, we one should not um, uh, do anything before you do the mitzvahs. There's actually a prohibition against 
eating before davening and uh, doing anything before davening because the first thing you got to attend to is your obligation to God. You have to pray. So, of course, you know, as Hasidim, we do eat something before a snack, something quickly before the davening, just so that we can daven better. For us, it's more important to have kavana during the davening, even though we may be eating something, but it's better to have more intent and uh, be uh, relaxed when you're davening and you can pray better. Uh, there is an allowance for people that are sick or not well. We consider us ourselves not healthy enough to be able to endure not eating for a long time. And uh, there is the famous story about the um, the uh, the wife of the Rebbe Maharash when she got sick. The doctors told her that the first thing in the morning that she has to eat first. And then, but she was very religious and she didn't want to eat before davening. But since, so she used to get up earlier and daven earlier so she can eat the first in the morning. And then when her father-in-law, the Tzemach Tzedek, heard about it, he said, he said, no, that's not right. Because he says, you're better off eating so that you can daven than davening so that you can eat, because she ended up davening early so that she can eat in time. So he says the trade-off is not worth it. But So that's why we're, by Hasidim, we're a little, a little more lenient. But generally speaking, you have the mitzvah of davening, but you also have the mitzvah of tefillin. So uh, also, um, the Shema Yisrael that we do, uh, in the morning, we have to. The Torah tells us, you got to do the Shema Yisrael two times a day. Now, there's this very specific time. The only time you have to do the Shema needs to be said up till one, up, up till a um, uh, three hours of the day, up till a quarter of the day. So, when the day starts early, um, it doesn't always. Uh, you know, the minion may be a little bit late, so when you're going to do the Shema with the minion, you may not, uh, you may not uh, read it in time. You may miss the time. So what people do is just to make sure they would do the Shema when you get up. You do the Shema. Now, now when one does the Shema, technically you should have tefillin on also. Uh, the tefillin are uh, a mitzvah. So... For both reasons, if you're going to eat something, uh, in that case, you shouldn't be eating before putting on tefillin also. So many have the tradition that if they're going to eat before the davening something, they're going to first put on the tefillin though. They're going to put on the tefillin and they're going to do the Shema. Because even though you can, um, will eat before davening because that's a long thing, but there's no reason to eat before putting on the tefillin. So they put on the tefillin and they say the Shema. The other thing is that if the minion davens late, so then they are going to miss the time of Shema, so that's why they do the Shema, but best to do the Shema with the tefillin. So apparently from what the previous Rebbe writes here, the Rebbe, the Rebbe, uh, the Rebbe Marash, you'd put on the, his father told him that the Rebbe Marash used to put on the two period tefillin Together, Rashi Rabbeinu Tam. Now, on your head, uh, the Talmud says there is space for two pairs of tefillin. I guess not the real large ones, mm-hmm. but the smaller ones. There is space Side to put on side. two, two pairs. That uh, that actually is a very interesting question, whether it means side by side or one on top of the other. But it's actually most of the time they do it one on top of the other. I think that's the way it's done. That's another. I have to look that up. I can't tell you right now off the top of my head. But I think the way it's done is those who put on together, they put it on one on top of the other. 
uh, because the middle point is a very important part. It has to be the parshias have to be one on the right and one on the left. So that is very important that it stays exactly right. Uh, over there by the hand, you know, you can put up uh, the, uh, the over there also. I'm not sure exactly how it's done, how they then do it. Two sets. Of straps. Of straps, yeah. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not sure exactly, I'm not sure exactly how they do it, how they do that. Uh, but that's the reason why he says that they were, those are the tefillin. Now I'm just going to assume that maybe the Rebbe Rashab himself used the regular tefillin of his father for his own davening. And then he used, uh, um, I told you once the story I heard, and let's, we'll tie it in also with, with Gimel Thomas. Um, you see how uh, the Rebbe was very much against wasting and utilizing everything uh, that we come across uh, for the positive. You know, every story, every incident, every happening, always try to bring something good. He said, like, if two Jews meet together, it's in order to bring a favor for another Jew. So it should always bring out something positive. So, but there was one time a person who, who was in the Tashmisha uh, Gedusha, he used to sell tefillin, things like that, and he once made a, a very nice pair of tefillin, which, you know, put in a lot of effort and a lot of thought to make it the highest quality and to make it uh, in uh, a very, a very good, a very beautiful period to fill him. And when he came to the Rebbe for the holidays, he come, he brought the Rebbe a gift. He brought him the tefillin as a gift, and he said to the Rebbe, said, "The Rebbe said, thank you very much. Appreciate the gift that you gave me, but I want to tell you that um, I used the tefillin that my father-in-law used to wear, and I'm not gonna use any other tefillin but his tefillin. Those are the tefillin that I used. That's, I'm not gonna use any other tefillin." So the, that person said, he says, okay, he says, I understand, but, but uh, let the Rebbe have an extra period of film, just, you know. So the Rebbe says, uh, some, another Yid can use the period of film, why should it be laying over here a period of film when I'm not going to use it? So he said, you know what, I'm going to make another period of film for another Yid, I'll give another Yid film. But the, he insisted the Rebbe should have it. But the Rebbe said, but these tefillin are not going to be used. So what does help us with? You got to make another pair of tefillin. The Rebbe, what are we going to, there's a pair of tefillin to be used. Somebody should be using the pair of tefillin. And the Rebbe said to him, if you want to, seems like you're insisting, you want to give me something. So the Rebbe said, well, one of the boxes, the covers has rubbed out. So if you want to give me a, a box, I'll take that. And... <coughs> But the first time around, this was the second time. The first time around, actually, when he told the Rebbe what he did with the tefillin, and he, he specified to the Rebbe what kind of uh, uh, what kind of extras that he put into it, and the Rebbe responded to him that it's actually questionable if it's kosher. You see, he tried to make it better, and sometimes, you know, you didn't make it better, you make it worse, so you try to be very good, and sometimes doing it very good actually causes you a problem, and in this case it caused him a problem, and he went and redid it, and the story I told you that happened the second time around, in which the Rebbe didn't take the phone anyways at the end but so so the Rebbe uh, utilized everything and, you know <coughs> it says in the Talmud we find a lot of times that there were uh, 
rabbis who would, um, would, would, would go into places even to see, you know, how their, how their teachers conducted themselves so they, they know how to do, they wanted to learn. And they would sometimes go in places which are, you know, private places, you know, uh, just to learn halachas, just to see how they do into, uh, in, 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 in these situations. It's, you know, it's interesting. The Mora brings down some various uh, different circumstances. But in, um, sometimes we learn from people, we don't learn about from what they say, but we learn from how they did. And sometimes... It is the by the way things. It's like the, you don't even pay attention to those things that you can sort of learn a lot. You can learn actually more, you know, how they do, you know, the day-to-day regular things. And you, you realize that, you know, the, the um, how much, first of all, how much thought goes in in every move. And generally it says a move of a tzaddik is actually represents as very spiritual. What's going on in the physical world is uh, merely a reflection. It's a shadow of what goes on in the spiritual level. And uh, definitely when you pay attention and you see like a story like this, and there's, this is just one of, of millions. And, um, and in the Rebbe's own way, uh, the Rebbe would come up like with, with ideas. For example... Uh, you know, in halacha, it says a man should not be walking two women. If two women are walking, a man is not allowed to walk in between two women. So sometimes they were, okay, I don't know at what age of a, we call it a woman, but, you know, so there were some girls standing there on the two sides, and they were saying hello to the Rebbe, and, uh, and, uh, and the Rebbe needed to go through, but without having to say anything, the Rebbe called over uh, one of the girls, and he whispered in her eye, he says, say... He told her to tell something to her friend. <laughs> and in the meantime, the Rebbe... <laughs> and no, he made that girl like a million dollars. The Rebbe told her something and the field. And in the meantime, she didn't have to... Uh, uh, do. So, but you see, that's, that's only a matter of, 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 of just the Rebbe's wisdom. And, yes. uh, but, not embarrassing But people. not embarrassing everybody, not and trying to find a way. But yet the Rebbe insisted that, you know, halacha needs to be followed. Not only halacha, but to the... That's why when you read some of the Rebbe's writings and we read the Rebbe's letters, the Rebbe never... Unfortunately, you know, so a lot of times people feel that they got to compromise a little bit. So, like if you want to reach certain people, if you want to... If you want people to, to like you or you want people to come or you want to do things, so you have to sort of lower your standard in order f- to try to um, attract people. I mean, this is basically the philosophy of the reform and even the conservative. I mean, they think if you make it more Judaism, more accessible, then what you're going to accomplish, uh, then you're going to uh, attract more people, then you can influence, you get more people. Other people think that um, you know by doing things by compromising on 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 on, on the standards uh, that way they'll be more successful. But by the Rebbe, you saw one hundred percent. The Rebbe didn't compromise. It didn't allow to compromise. Didn't allow uh, being successful uh, uh, to the Rebbe is doing things according to halacha, according to the Torah. There's no independent success. You cannot bend any halacha or bend any custom or bend any rules uh, 
to be successful or what you think is successful because success has to be done and it has to be played by the rule. And as we see, when you play by the rule, it doesn't cost you at the end of the day. But a lot of people, you know, have a hard time seeing it that way because when you look at the simple superficial level, uh, you don't see it that way. So the actual people will say, you know, be realistic and be practical. And you see that if you don't insist that things have to be done in the right way, then, uh, you know, you'll be more successful. And they say, look, look at this. This person is cheating a little bit. He's making a lot of money. The other, other person is is deceptive and he's making money. So if you do the same thing, you'll make money too. Now, you don't know exactly whether the person is making money, whether he's not making money, you don't really know, but it appears that way. And, and you know, when someone says, you know, come on, get real, you know, this is real, this is the way the world works, that that's what you got to do in order to make money. And, you know, once you make money, you do everything. But it goes without saying that the Rebbe never wanted to, or never allowed for anyone to compromise and look at the Rebbe's letters, and most of the writing of Rebbe's letters, and I think that we're going to start after, because we're, we're done with the Yemei Chabad, and we've done the entire cycle. I think we have maybe one more entry, I think we have. So after Gimel Tammuz, I think we'll, we'll start reading from the Rebbe's letters, and we'll get a first-hand, a first-hand uh, taste, see, because over there you'll see the various different audiences the Rebbe responds to, and the, the, this collection of the Rebbe's letters are organized by, by years. So that starts from the beginning and it goes all the ways down. So some letters are scholarly, some of them are uh, talking to professors, some of them are talking to people, some of them are talking to people that have a broken heart, you know, that are turning to the Rebbe for medical advice. And you, you'll see letter after letter with dated the same date and how the Rebbe switches to the same from one to the other, and everything is just like um, uh, another amazing part. But you there you see directly the Rebbe in that way. Now, the letters that we have over here are letters that the Rebbe wrote either in Yiddish or in Hebrew. There was a whole other set of letters. Um, there used to be a uh, Dr. Nissen Mendel. He translated many of the books. He worked as a secretary of the Rebbe. The English letters, he was a... Um, he was a uh, professor, and he, he had a, uh, a good command of the English language. He also had a, um, he was a PhD, and he had a, a, a very talent, great talent in writing, and he had a lot of knowledge in, in the Torah itself. So the Rebbe would dictate to him, but sometimes Rebbe would tell him to expand on it, to, um, to uh, write, and then the Rebbe would look it over. So that's a whole other treasure, uh, which... Uh, is not part of these series, but that's a whole other series. Um, there is a um, there is also a lot of times Rebbe gave answers. That's Rebbe's handwriting. Besides all the letters, those were just when you wrote a letter, so the Rebbe would answer you by handwriting. That's another. It's not a letter, but it's also. Yeah, what are you saying? When you read to us before you come up here to teach, aren't you reading a response from the Rebbe to someone? Yeah, but these, these those are responses. Um, that what I read is, is 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 a collection of all the Rebbe's halachic rulings in all different matters. Now, where do they come from? 
A lot of them come from the Rebbe's letters. Yes, so some of them are Rebbe's letters that the halacha comes from. But a lot of those, a lot of, yeah, that's right, a lot of those letters, uh, um, a lot of uh, halacha comes from the Rebbe's talks, from Rebbe's sikhas, from answers the Rebbe gave, so there's from various different places. But over there, it doesn't go in chronological order the way the Rebbe wrote them. Over there, they just took out those letters halacha. And like Marty was saying, the Rebbe did not really want to serve as a rabbi who answers questions in Allah. The Rebbe used to send you, in most cases, when you'd ask the Rebbe a question as it pertains to the um, halacha, he would send you to a rav, go check a rav. But when there were general matters, then the Rebbe sort of addressed himself, and sometimes the Rebbe did answer. So I'm saying it wasn't what he, what he would normally want to do, and that way that wasn't his. What? I read someplace the only time he actually made decisions was on the international deadline situation, because it had, hadn't been really addressed. He did on that, and he would take on uh, some general stuff, yeah, like doing Rebbe operations, would, doing yeah, operations yeah. before, like the Rebbe wouldn't allow to do an operation, uh, an elective operation, you know, in yeah. Chen, like three days before Shabbos. Yeah, there was, there was another thing that he, but he said that he would not discuss those items. He yeah, would, but... He would call from somebody else what their ruling was, but he wouldn't make a ruling. Yeah, but, and yet, the... Um, the Shulch Menachem has six, eight volumes. That's all collections with him not making rulings. That was the rule of the Rebbe. But the Rebbe was also very strong. Like he, he, he answered. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of traditions in which Chabad does things maybe different than some other groups. And it always raised eyebrows. He says, why, do, why are you doing it different than everybody else? You know, what's the source for you? How come you're doing it different? And the Rebbe tackled a lot of these issues. The Rebbe explained in many, many different places. Uh, the Rebbe explained, you know, why the traditions are. And, you know, a lot of times people didn't like the Rebbe's response. As, for example, um, the Rebbe explained why Chabad doesn't sleep in the sukkah. Now, Chabad doesn't sleep in the sukkah because the Rebbe didn't sleep in the sukkah. But the Rebbe didn't say that we don't sleep in the sukkah. The Rebbe just explained, uh, gave a a reasoning why we don't sleep in the sukkah, you know, and like reasonings of Torah, it doesn't, there can be several reasons can be, and the Rebbe made one suggestion, but the Rebbe got a lot of flack for that from people that, the opponents of Hasidus, and they, they, they did, but, you know, it's not like um, sometimes that a person is not careful. The Rebbe was careful to the extreme against all those people think that they're religious. The Rebbe was extremely careful on every, on every point, every small detail. And actually, we learned that um, um, in, in the Sikha, the Rebbe says that uh, there is a part in every mitzvah which is equal, even if it's a very small mitzvah, a non-important mitzvah, seemingly, if it's from the rabbis. If it's God's will, God's will is across the board, so it doesn't make a difference if it expresses itself in something small or something big. It's still God's will. So if you're violating, you're violating God's will. If you are connecting, you're connecting to Hashem. So in, at a certain level, the value of the mitzvah don't make a difference. That's why he says you can't go and weigh mitzvahs. You have to uh, treat its mitzvah prop- uh, properly. But anybody who knows the Rebbe, or even elementary, and you don't have to be a chassid, or you don't have to be a believer, and you don't have to be 
you know, following him all the time, but just look in the Rebbe's letters and you will see someone who is uh, to the extreme so careful in every halacha. Now, sometimes, unfortunately, when you talk about rabbis, they're very careful in the laws that between them and God, but then the laws between them and people, they're not so careful, you know, not to, not to insult somebody, not to speak Lashon Hara, not to, you know, they get... Sometimes they use their religion actually as a vehicle to beat up on other people too. That's also a lot that happens. Or business ethics. So, but go through when you go through. And Mitzvah Shem, we'll see when we go through the letters. The only thing is, there's no uh, defined goal over there. Like if this book finishes, so we went through this cycle. This goes on. It has 32 <laughs> volumes. <laughs> but I think what we'll start doing is from the letters after the Rebbe became Rebbe. There's actually about four volumes that was Rebbe wrote before he became Rebbe. They basically, what they try to do is collect all the Rebbe. They don't have everything, but there's more coming up. But mostly they tried to collect what was available at the time. And, they, um, and, and it also helps because when we read, like in the Shulchan Menachem, we're just reading a part of the letter. But when it sheds light, when you read the whole letter, you see to whom, you see it in context. Sometimes it helps you out also understanding what, what the meaning of the letter. So we'll, Mr. Shem will do that. Um, my son is going on a job interview. Just like that. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, yeah. 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 In Yemei Chabad, this is another entry for the 11th day of Tammuz. And this is in the year of Tofresh Sadik Vov. Uh, that was the year that, um, this is uh, 1936. Um, that was the year when the great genius and Rabbi Chosid of Shneir Zalman Slonim uh, passed away. He was a grandson of the Rebetzin Menucha Rachel who was the daughter of the Mittler Rebbe, and they lived in Hebron. And Rav Shneir Zalman Slonim was a grandson of Menucha Rachum. This Rav Shneir Zalman Slonim was born in the year Tofresh Chovbeis, in the city of Hebron. Uh, his father was Rav Achosid Rav Mordechai Ber Duber Slonim, who was the son of the Rebbe Tzimanucha Rachel, who was the daughter, Rebbe Tzimanucha Rachel was the daughter of the Middle Rebbe. He was a great genius, both in Niglan Chassidus, the revealed and the esoteric parts of Torah, and he married uh, the Rebbe Mushka. She was his cousin, uh, Because she was, Mushka was the daughter from a, bo- a brother of Remort Chaiduber, Slanim's brother, another son of the Rebbe Tzimanucha Rachel. Uh, his name was Rebbe Levi Yitzchok Slanim. So the two cousins, the Mort Chaiduber's son and Levi Yitzchok's daughter, uh, two brothers of the Rebbe Tzimanucha Rachel, uh, their children uh, got married, married cousins. That took place in the year Tafrej Memhe. In the beginning of the leadership of the Rebbe Rashab, he traveled to Lubavitch and he stayed there for a lengthy time as a Yeshiv. And the Rebbe Rashab was makar of him, uh, extended to him 
special care, and he would teach, learn together with him Hasidus. In the winter of Tafrej Memvav, in the journey to Yalta, the Masa Yalta was when the Rebbe Rashab, for uh, purposes of his health, uh, went to the mountains in Yalta in the so- southern Ukraine. And um, it's that period, Reb Shneir Zalman was the teacher of the Rebbe Rayats. In his uh, writings of the previous Rebbe, from that period we find, he says that uh, father was sitting and looking into a sefer that he took with him, and he was sitting and writing, and Reb Schneir would teach me about an hour, and then he would instruct me to review that which we have learned, and he would go to father, and together they would learn in that book, and my father would speak, and Reb Schneir would listen, and Reb Schneir would ask, and my father would answer, and my father explained him, and Reb Schneir had um, a major enjoyment of this, his face lit up. Um, after uh, the uh, Reb Schneir returned to Eretz HaKodesh, to Eretz Yisrael, the exchange of letters between him and the Rebbe Rasha began. And those letters are full with deep uh, uh, Haskola, intellectual uh, depth in the teaching of Hasidus, in the uh, Sefer, English Kodesh of the Rebbe Rasha, there are tens of letters that are directed to Reb Schneir Zalman. Uh, the interesting thing that in the letters to Rav Shneir Zalman, the uh, Rebbe Rashab refers to him, describes him as my grandson, and that is because the Rebbe Maharash, uh, that's the father of Rebbe Rashab, he described his father, Rav Shneir Zalman, who was the son of Menuchel Rochel, Rav Mort Chayber, so the uh, Rebbe Maharash called him my son-in-law, uh, he was the daughter of the Rebbe, he was the son of the Rebbe, of the Rebbe Tzimun Chorochel. But the, um, as, um, so that's why his son, if uh, if it was his father's uh, son-in-law, then his son was sort of a grandson. So that's how the, um, the, the son-in-law of, of the Rebbe Rashab, so therefore, if he's a son-in-law, so then his son, which was Rav Shneir Zalman, was a grandson of the Rebbe Rashab. Um, and uh, later, earlier, the story was brought down why he called him his son-in-law. The year Tafrish Samach, uh, the great gene Chos Rav Shneir Zalman Lublin uh, instructed the author of Teres Chesed, Rav Shneir Zalman Lublin, to accept the uh, Rabonis in the city of Yafo. He checked, he asked the Rebbe Rashab, and he gave him his blessing and his approval. And he was the rabbi of the Kilos Chabad in Yafi Tel Aviv for 37 years until the time of his passing and his internment is in Tel Aviv.